All right, so a little confusion on this particular reading. Uh, I apologize for that, but I wanted to call an audible um, rather late in the game as far as what we were going to read from the Bible. Um, every year in all of my philosophy classes, um, I have my students read a chunk of the Bible. Um, I think it's good preparation for talking about the Western notion of God, especially on the heels of talking about um, Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Taoism. Um, but I, I usually have my students read the Ecclesiastes, which is like one self-contained book um, from the Old Testament, which is all about wisdom and philosophy, and it's actually really awesome, and I highly recommend reading it when you get the chance. Um, but since our central question this semester isn't about the meaning of life or free will or epistemological responsibility, I wanted to focus more on a passage that sort of illuminated how the Bible sees God. Um, since we're going to be talking about this particular Western notion of God quite a bit um, over the next several weeks between Aquinas and Descartes and all of these other Christian thinkers, or at least thinkers from Christian nations. Um, but as much as, you know, I realized that the reading was confusing and probably, like, fragmented, um, I'm hoping that the story at least is familiar. This is the same story of the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. Uh, this is the story of the Exodus. Um, and the reason why I wanted to focus on this particular story is because this is, as far as the Bible is concerned, the moment when God reveals who he is. Um, this is the big show for both the Old and New Testament in a real sense. Like, as much as the New Testament is about Jesus and about, like, the new revelation and the new set of rules and, you know, the old laws are not what we are following anymore, um, it is still very much predicated on this series of episodes, the Exodus, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt with the power of God at his back, um... This is what I want to stress, um, but as much as like I do want to talk about the Exodus and what God looks like in this particular passage, um, we need to sort of expand our scope beyond this particular reading. Um, this reading is exemplary, but it is not comprehensive. Um, it shows us what God is like, but it doesn't show us all of what God is like. Um, because I can't have my students read the entire Bible in a single week. Um, and yet that's kind of what's called for in this situation in order to properly understand what Judaism, Christianity, and Islam actually believe about the world and how God interacts in it. Um, so this lecture is not going to be explicitly and exclusively about what we read for class today, unlike most of our lectures. Um, this lecture is going to be devoted to me talking about God in the sense of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, we're going to talk about what God looks like from the Western perspective. Um, and I realize we're going off book on this one. Um, usually, like the Tao Te Ching lecture, this tends to be fairly freeform. I talk to my students, and I want to sort of set the record straight as to what Christianity actually is. Because there's so much bad information out there. So many misconceptions, so many sort of skewed interpretations. Like, Christianity has been thoroughly mangled in the way that it comes to us today. Um... So I want to, like, do just a little bit of setting the record straight and sort of making clear what Christianity and Judaism and the Western religions in general are 
actually doing, um, why they believe what they believe, how their theology works in like a very rough strokes kind of way, um, what we need to take away from that in order to understand what philosophy is going to be grappling with for the next literally 2,000 years. Um, because let me stress this, from a historical perspective, this whole Bible Christianity thing is absolutely as important as anything else we read in this class, if not the most important thing, period. Um, Western culture is rigorously changed by Christianity becoming the dominant religion in the West. Um, historically speaking, philosophically speaking, ideologically speaking, hell, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't even have the focus on science that we have today if it wasn't for the Western religions taking over from, you know, what pagan philosophy and religion was doing in the early uh, several centuries AD and CE. Um, like, this is earth-shaking. This is radical. Um, even if you are not personally a Christian, it's impossible to deny how important Christianity has been to the Western world. We live in a Christian nation founded by Christian nations, founded by Christian nations all the way down to the Roman Empire. Um, like, I cannot overstate this enough. Um, so we need to get this straight. We need, we need to know what exactly God is in order to understand how philosophers are modifying that perspective or denying it outright or, you know, changing it in one way or another. Um, so let me start with kind of an overview of what we're dealing with. Um, obviously the Bible is huge. Like my personal much loved King James version is a thousand pages. Um, and that's, you know, with really tiny text and two columns on really thin paper, like this is a huge book, but it's also not a book. Um, like, let me make this point first. The Bible was not written by one person the way that like Harry Potter was written by J.K. Rowling or, you know, Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code. Um, the Bible is a collection of writings from a bunch of different writers over a long period of time. Um, like scholars very much disagree about a lot of this. We'll get to that. Um, but what they definitely agree on is that the Bible is a book created over a long period of time by a multitude of different people. There's no denying that. Um, the oldest parts of the Bible may date back as far as like three, 4,000 years ago. Um, so really, really super old. Um, the New Testament, the stuff that Christians believe but Jews don't accept, um, was written probably around 2,000 years ago, like in between A.D. 50 and A.D. 100, say 20. Um, but importantly, this is not one single solitary voice. Like even hardcore evangelical Christians are not going to argue that God wrote the Bible. Um, God inspired the Bible. God basically, like, told the writers of the Bible, be it Moses or um, the Apostle Paul or uh, Samuel or, you know, the various prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, what to write. 
Not explicitly. This is not like people taking dictation from God. Rather, God's spirit descends on them, and then they are inspired to write what God wants them to write, though in their own voices and with their own words. So, it's ambiguous. Um, it's less ambiguous in Islam, actually. Like, Islam has a really straightforward origin story for the Quran. Like, literally, the archangel, I believe Gabriel, shows up and is like, okay, Muhammad take this down and like literally dictates word for word what the Quran is going to say um, so as a result like Muslims take the Quran way more literally and way more explicitly than Christians and Jews take the Bible um, to the point that like I've read an English translation of the Quran and I cannot say in good faith that I have read the Quran the Quran was written in Arabic it is the only language that the Quran appropriately is transmitted in. Um, the words themselves are sacred. That is not true with the Bible. Um, the Bible was originally written in ancient Hebrew, um, a little bit of Aramaic, looking at you, Daniel, um, and then Greek in the New Testament. But those languages aren't crucial to, to its transmission. You can say, having read the NIV or the ESV or our chunk in class, I have read the Bible, and nobody will fault you for this. Um, it's not the specific letters, the specific words, the specific language that is important. It is the message. Um, for Christians and Jews, it is what God says that is important, not the way that God says it. Um, which, you know, to some degree is also true for the Quran, but for the Quran, the words also hold significant importance. Um, they are the words of God, literally, um, in a way that the word of God, as applied to the Bible, really is more figurative. Um, but enough of that fussing about. Um, what I wanted to stress was there are a whole bunch of different writers here, a whole bunch of different perspectives, and they're all collected in this one binding. Um, and by a whole lot, I mean like there are 66 different books in the Bible and probably something like 30, 35 writers, um, if not more. Uh, like scholars very much disagree about this. Which is probably as good a time as any to talk about the actual scholarly disagreement about the Bible. Um, so anytime that anyone does biblical scholarship, and again, like, if you are interested in the Bible, if you want to know more about it, great. Talk to me about it. Um, I will, you know, point you in the right direction. I will give you good resources. I've studied this stuff forever. This is probably one of my major areas of expertise. Um, but the thing is, scholarship about the Bible is not unified. It is very much divided. Um, it is factionalized, partially because this book is so important um, and people do not have a sort of like indifference to this text. If you are a Christian, you believe that this is the inspired word of God, that this is the capital T truth and that your salvation depends on it. Um, therefore, if somebody attacks the Bible, if somebody says, you know, so-and-so probably didn't write this book, or, you know, this probably wasn't how it was originally written, you typically push back against that. Because, again, your salvation is on the line. Your eternal life depends on you having read this book correctly, um for a long period of time. By contrast, atheist scholars who have studied the Bible, and this has been like a thing for over a hundred years at this point, um, they will frequently try and discredit 
um, the books of the Bible for one reason or another. Like, you know, Moses didn't write the Torah. Um, he only, like, is taken as the figurehead for, you know, the, the Jewish gospel or the Jewish writings. Rather, they were written in, like, the 5th century, much later than they were originally thought to be written, um, and therefore we can't trust them as much. Um, and part of the reason why they're arguing for this is kind of the mirror image of why Christians argue for what they're arguing. Um, for the atheist scholar, these things that are miracles cannot possibly have happened. Science says, you know, seas don't part. Um, like, whole nations cannot be afflicted with flaming hailstones. Rivers do not turn to blood. This is not a thing that happens. Um, so in defense of science, they are arguing against the veracity of what the text says. They're basically saying, you know, these writers are basically just tabulating myth. Um, they're inventing this stuff. It is not actually true. Um, and again, they're also contending that they don't have to, you know, take the Bible seriously. Um, their eternal salvation is not on the line when they reject the Bible. But also... They don't have to worry about what it says. They don't have to follow its restrictions. When the Bible says don't fornicate, don't have sex with other people who are not your wife or your husband, they can say, you know, I don't care what that says because there is no God. My life is not on the line. I am not doing a bad thing. Notice in both cases, these people are motivated by their own interest. Um, so Christians are motivated by protecting their salvation. Atheists are motivated by protecting their way of life. Um, and as a result, there is no neutral stance on the Bible. Like, you can't have a neutral stance on the Bible. The thing that the Bible insists most, like, deliberately is that either you're in or you're out. And if you're in, you're saved, and everything's going to go great for you, and you're going to go to heaven, hooray for you. And if you're out, then you go to hell, and you're going to be damned, and you're going to suffer eternal damnation, and you will suffer and suffer and suffer forever. Which is a pretty rough thing, and again, means that there are no outsiders. You cannot have an unbiased opinion on the Bible. You're in or you're out. And either way, it makes for some really tough, really controversial discussion. Um, so let me stress, like, if you want to research the Bible, again, come talk to me about it. I can point you in some pretty profitable directions, but if you go diving into the library looking for books on the Bible, you will probably come up with a lot of both sides. A lot of people saying that the Bible is tripe and not worth reading. A lot of people saying that the Bible is the inspired word of God and therefore everything that it says is true. Um, you will find people who are attacking the Bible on feminist grounds or on sexual grounds or on um, like moral grounds. And you will find people defending the Bible uh, for the exact same reasons. Um, it is not easy to parse through all this. But then the natural question you should be asking is, why do I consider myself an authority? Where do I fall on the divide? Um, and the fact of the matter is, I am a Christian. I, like, I'm not going to apologize or, you know, pretend that I'm not. Like, the perspective you're going to get this from is from the perspective of a Christian, but a Christian who has been around the block a few times. Um, a Christian who is not just 100% devoted to, like, one particular interpretation or series of interpretations. Um, I went to... In, a, an undergraduate program that taught the Bible from an atheist literary perspective. I went to Boston College where I learned 
uh, to read the Bible from the Catholic perspective. I studied at a hardcore Baptist fundamentalist seminary, really a hardcore Baptist evangelical seminary. It's not the same thing, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, I have also studied this Bible in my own time from a whole bunch of different sort of attitudes and perspectives. Um, I have learned to view this text from a variety of different positions. Um, I have learned to take research from a variety of different positions and perspectives. I have learned how to navigate through all of the conflicting attitudes, all of the fighting voices, all of the disagreement. Um, and I can come to something that isn't neutrality, there's no such thing, um, but something that is informed and sort of approaches and appreciates a bunch of different voices, which is a really hard thing to do, um, and it takes a lot of practice. So when I am going to talk about the Bible today, I am going to do so from the perspective that I am teaching you, not preaching to you. Um, when your pastor gets up at the front of the of the church and starts like tearing into the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or you know some story from the Old Testament, um, he's going to do it with an eye towards application. How does this change your life? Um, I will like your pastor will assume that the text is true and then explain to you what the text means in your own life. My job is to sort of describe to you what the text actually says, um, explain what different people believe about that text, and then leave it up to you to decide what to do with that information. Um, my goal is not to indoctrinate you. Like, secretly, I totally want you all to become Christians, and yes, I will absolutely, like, be explaining the gospel to you um, during this lecture. But the goal here is so you know the gospel. Um, conveniently for me, there's no conflict there. Like the Bible specifically says, you know, you do not have to like browbeat people into coming to God. Instead, you just have to tell them the gospel and then they will follow it if they are led. Um, so my job is easy. All I have to do is tell you the gospel and I have satisfied both my requirements as your professor in a secular sense and my responsibilities as a Christian trying to convert you. So here we go. Um, so first off, again... All of this comes with the caveat that different people believe different things about this text, and we can talk about it more in the future. Like, if you have any questions, please, please, please come to me. Um, I know that there's so much bad information out there. I know that, like, even churches tend to give a pretty skewed or, like, partial, incomplete understanding of exactly how the Bible works. If you want more information, send me an email. Send me a message. Talk to me about this. I will absolutely help clarify and like clear up what's going on in this mad, mad text and everything else that's going on around it. Um, but my main goal today is to sort of just describe the basics. Like, what is the basic sort of trajectory of the Bible? What is it teaching us? Why is it so important? Why have so many people been talking about it for so long? Um, what is the central message that is especially important for our philosophy going forward? Um, specifically, like, what is God like? As our central question, you know, presumes to ask, we're going to get the biblical answer to that question. And the first thing that we need to talk about, like the single most important quality of what makes God, God, from the perspective of Christians, Jews, Muslims, and basically the entire Western world, is the fact that he creates. 
Um, like Genesis one one in the beginning, the earth in the beginning, um, the earth was formless and void and God moved over the face of the deep. There was nothing. And then God said, let there be light and bam, there's light. God said, let there be like waters and earth and there's waters and earth. And God says, let there be animals and there's animals. Um, the single most important characteristic that like every single philosopher is going to be dealing with if they're dealing with it from the Christian perspective is the fact that God created the world. Um, like this is foundational to who God is. Um, and now like, again, already we have to qualify and clarify because Genesis one is like one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible, which is one of the most controversial books ever written. Um, let me emphasize that this doesn't necessarily have to like fight with science. Um, I realize that most of the exposure that you get to the Bible from like the news media and stuff like that has it that Christians are always angry about Genesis one. Like they insist that the world was created in seven 24 hour days, um, that they refuse to accept the theory of evolution or, you know, the idea that the universe is billions of years old. Um, this is partially true. Um, but that again has to do with the fact that Christians themselves frequently disagree over this text. Um, like I said, you know, Christians and atheists dis disagree vehemently over how this text is interpreted. The only people who disagree more vehemently over how this book is to be interpreted is Christians and other Christians. Um, you've probably heard of the wide variety of Christian denominations out there. You were probably familiar with the fact that there's like Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox Christians, that there are like Methodists and Episcopalians and Baptists and Fundamentalists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and like Lutherans and I don't even know. There are so many of them. Um, the basic reason that there are so many different Christians and there are so many different groups is that again, everybody disagrees about stuff. Um, this book has been so important to so many people for so long that the way that you interpret very specific passages often has major repercussions. Um, I am not in a position in my little hour and 20 minute lecture to go into detail onto why there are so many different denominations and where they all come from and how exactly the history of Christianity developed in this way. Suffice it to say for our purposes, that the major divisions we need to look at are between Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox Christians on the one hand, and then sort of, let's call them liberal and conservative Christians on the other. Christians who are more progressive, who are interested in interpreting the Bible more generously, more like analogically, and Christians who sort of have a very closed traditional understanding of the way that the Bible works. The perspective that you tend to see most like most represented in the media at least, are Christian Protestant evangelicals, i.e. like hardcore right-wing Christians who are, have a very narrow view of interpretation. Um, that whole idea that the universe was made in only seven 24-hour days is very narrow, very traditional, very evangelical, very fundamentalist. 
and it represents a fairly small minority of Christians, honestly, um, just a very vocal minority, especially in this country. Um, outside of America, you get a whole bunch of different Christians with a whole bunch of different perspectives. Heck, inside America, you talk to like hardcore Catholics or you talk to um, more mainline Protestant sects like Methodists and uh, Episcopalians, and you'll get tons of people who think that you know the Bible is compatible with science um, for a variety of reasons. Either there was a huge gap before God created the world as we know it, or perhaps each of those seven days that are described in Genesis one, you know, on day one God created light, on day two God created the waters and the and the land, on day three God you know separates this from that. Um, in each of these cases most Christians will argue that that was probably not just like 24 hours, but a long period of time. Um, one of our major philosophers, Augustine, who we're not going to read in this class, unfortunately, but he's like one of the most important um, medieval philosophers um, who wrote in like the fourth and fifth centuries AD. Um, he argued that like each of the days could not possibly be 24 hours because um, it takes until day four for the sun and moon to get made and you don't have days until the sun and moon are there. Um, so basically he's saying, you know, it could be thousands of years millions of years between day one and day two god creating the light or separating the light from the darkness and then god creating the like earth and separating the waters from the waters um there's a whole bunch of different interpretations on this and not all of them are antagonistic to science what christians tend to agree on across the board like in their most traditional and most liberal senses is that god still engineered creation in some way like he is responsible for setting the big bang into motion or he is responsible for guiding evolution towards his purposes um some christians will argue that god did most of the macro evolution while you know science is capable of doing micro evolution like we can evolve and sort of or guide the trajectory of like species of dogs and get you know like dogs with a lot of hair or dogs with a little bit of hair small dogs versus large dogs but god is the one who gives us dogs in the first place as opposed to cats um like if there was some first land animal that crawled up out of the ocean god is responsible for that but what it evolved into afterwards maybe god let that let nature take its course um there's so many different perspectives and again like this alone this issue of how does science and religion work together is the material that we could spend an entire semester talking about all by itself we obviously don't have the time for that we have one lecture to talk about the entire bible um so i apologize for not giving like definitive explanations for any of these big ticket controversial issues again if you want to know more email me we can talk about this stuff um but blasting forward god creates the universe that is the first primary thing that god is responsible for um importantly for christians and for a lot of philosophers down the road he creates it ex nihilo which is the fancy latin term for from nothing um god does not need to like take legos and make a lego tower out of them he's not rearranging pieces he is literally like taking nothing and making stuff out of it let there be light and there is light 
um, let there be a world and there is a world. Um, Genesis 1 actually portrays it as God speaks the universe into being um, in a real sense. Like, this is crucial to who God is. Importantly for philosophers, this means that God is the origin point for the universe. Um, like, God is where everything starts. Um, and this is not just a Christian idea either. Plato and Aristotle, 300 and 400 years before Christianity, um, although there's a bit of a question as to whether they were exposed to Judaism at any point in their history, um, they argued as well for a creator god like a god who made the universe. Um, Plato in the Timaeus argues for this guy called the Demiurge, who is basically like a forge god who basically just forges the world into being. Um, Aristotle will take that a step further in his metaphysics and argue that like because stuff moves, there has to be something to put it into motion, which means that somewhere along the line there must have been a thing that can move without itself being moved, and that he calls the prime mover, which Christians will take to call God. Um, so philosophers have this understanding of a creator God before Christian, well, before Christians, probably after Jews have talked about this. Um, the idea of a maker God is not exclusive to the Western religions as we have them now. Um, but there's sort of some ambiguity about where exactly the idea initially springs from. Um, it's not unique, but that doesn't mean that it isn't original in the Jewish text. Um, it could be that Genesis is the first place where monotheism is really explored, God as creator. Um, but again, scholarly disagreement, everybody has their own take on it, nobody's is really definitive in this particular case. Um, but the next thing we definitely have to talk about is the fact that God is good. Um, this is the second major quality that is sort of super important to philosophers and to Christianity overall. God created the world, but on every step of the way, God acknowledges that what he is creating is good. Like, if you read Genesis 1, there's a very obvious pattern at stake. Like, God will say the thing into being, and then God will look at the thing and divide it into its constituent parts, and then God will say, and it is good. And over and over, this is repeated. God created the, the light, separated the light from the darkness, and saw that it was good. God created the oceans, and he separated the air from the waters, and now he says that it's good. God separates the land from the water, and it's good. God creates fish and birds, it's good. God creates mammals and land creatures, and it's good. And God creates humans, and it's good. Humans have a priority of place in God's creation. Um, we have intelligence. We are made in the image of God, whatever that means. Philosophers especially like to say that, it's, that we're rational. Um, our rationality is the image of God, but you will hear lots of other people say lots of other things about that. Again, can't get into it. This is not a theology class, not today anyway. Um, but once the universe is entrusted to humans, things get a little wonky. Um, the first thing that God notices about humans in Genesis 2 is that Adam alone is bad. This is the first not good thing about the universe. It is not good for the man to be alone. Um, so God trots out all of the animals and he's like, hey, 
why don't you pick one of these animals to be your friend and your helper? And God, Adam names all the animals, but none of the animals are suitable as Adam's helper. So God makes woman, Eve, out of Am's, Adam's rib. And then Adam and Eve, they are good helpers for each other. And God sees that this is good and everything is awesome. The world's going to be great. Nothing could possibly go wrong. Except, of course, it does. Um, in Genesis 3 humans break the one rule that god has given them at this point specifically there's this one tree in the middle of the forest the tree of knowledge of good and evil that nobody is allowed to eat from the humans are not supposed to eat from it but the crafty serpent the craftiest of the beasts tells adam and eve that it's good to eat and they should totally eat this apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and adam and eve eat and they have now sinned and then everything goes to shit um and this is what I want to emphasize, like, as far as the Christians and Jews are concerned, this is it. This is the moment that evil enters the world. This is, as it is usually called, the fall of man. Um, and this story is the story of original sin, the first sin coming into the world. And notice that it is the responsibility of humans. Um, unlike, say, the Greeks, where evil was always in the world and arguably exists before even good does, um, the world was good because God is good, and then humans screwed it up with their darn free will, which is a whole other issue and a whole other theological issue, and we'll probably run into it later along the way, but no time for it now. The important thing to take away from this is that sin enters the world as a result of Adam and Eve's action, and it will pervert the created order from now on. Like, the entirety of the Bible after Genesis 1-3 to is basically God desperately trying to fix what humans have broken, and it really just getting more and more broken all of the time. Now, presumably God, being God, could just, like, snap his fingers and say, okay, and now I wink it out of existence and we're going to do this all again, but he doesn't. Um, and that's one of the big questions that philosophers are going to contend with. Why does God allow evil in the world? Um, this is essentially the problem of evil, which we will talk about more next week when we talk about Aquinas and Aquinas' attitude towards God. Um, but for our purposes, again, the important thing to remember is God created the world and it was good. Humans screwed it up. And now God is trying to rescue them from their mistake. God is trying to reach out to humanity and restore the goodness of the created order. And it really doesn't go well. Like immediately after Adam and Eve are chucked out of Eden because God doesn't want them there anymore, um, they their sons, Cain and Abel, like are sacrificing to God and Cain gets jealous and kills Abel. So now we've got our first murder on our hands. So that sucks. Um, Cain gets basically run out of town and he has his own sort of story that goes on afterwards, but we're not going to get into it here. Um, eventually things become so freaking bad. Um, like apparently at this point, angels have been sleeping with humans. I like, it's very unclear exactly why this goes down, but anyway, God decides we're going to just hit the reset button, flood the entire world, wipe out all humans, except for a couple of handpicked survivors, Noah and his family. And they're going to ride this ark along with the animals 
levels, and then they're basically just going to restart creation all over again, because the first time it sucked. Um, and God does this, he floods the world, he saves Noah, Noah successfully, like, survives the flood, it's now up to Noah to repopulate the earth, and it takes, like, ten minutes before Noah gets drunk off his ass, and now he is ruining things again, apparently because one of his sons may or may not have slept with him. Yeah, it's weird, and the Bible is very dark a lot of the time. At any rate, hooray, now everything is bad again. The rest of Genesis is going to be a combination of there being more bad things and more people screwing up the created order, but then we get our first sort of glimpse of light on the horizon, namely Abraham. Um, Abraham is a hugely important figure. He is considered the patriarch of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, um, although for various reasons. Abraham is special, not because he's like awesome or super powered or really, really good or really, really nice. He believes in God. Like after all of this crazy stuff with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, with Noah, with the flood, with like all of the destruction of everything that had gone before, um, Abraham has somehow gotten through this whole process and believes in God enough that when God tells him to leave his hometown, Abraham just picks up and does. Um, Abraham is that faithful. And as a result, God decides to reward Abraham for his faith. Um, he says, Abraham, I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. Um, you will be the father of many nations, and I will give this particular chunk of land, namely Israel, to you and to your descendants to enjoy forevermore. The trouble is, things get messy with Abraham as well. So, you know, Abraham is kind of an old guy at this point, and his wife, Sarah, is also kind of an old woman. Um, so he's like, all right, let's get started on this whole, you know, starting up the, the father of many nations things. Like, I need to have a kid, God. Where's my kid? And God's like, don't worry, I got this. And Abraham's like, okay. And years pass, and nothing happens, and Abraham has no children, and he's still supposed to be the father of many nations. So he goes back to God, and he's like, hey, God, um, about this whole, like, Father of Many Nations thing, when are we getting started on this? And God's like, I've got this under control. And Abraham's like, really? Because there aren't any kids. And God's like, tell you what, let's, let's sit down, have a real serious chat. I'm gonna, like, make this deal with you, and we're gonna, like, cut apart animals in the traditional way, and we're gonna, like, have a real deal covenant, and I'm gonna promise you for sure, Father of Many Nations, everyone who blesses you will be blessed, everyone who curses you will be cursed. Um, all you have to do at this point is circumcise yourself. And this is where the idea of circumcision enters the whole, like, Western religion. Like, Abraham and all of his descendants must now circumcise themselves in order to, you know, be sacred to God. This is where the Jewish practice comes from. Um, and Abraham's like, okay, that was fun, so when do the kids start? And God's like, I've got it, don't worry about it. And Abraham's like, okay. And Sarah goes through menopause. Like, she can't have kids anymore. So Abraham comes to God and he's like, all right, God, so I think we missed our window. Um, Sarah can't have kids anymore. And God's like, don't worry about it. I've got this. And Abraham's like, seriously? Really? Like, we, we missed our chance. We're, we're done. Father of many nations is not on the table anymore. And he's like, dude, I've got this. Don't worry about it. And Abraham's like, okay. So he talks to Sarah and Sarah's like, hey, why don't we just, you know, take this matter into our own hands here's my handmaiden, Hagar. Like, you go in unto her, in the biblical sense, 
and you're going to have a kid with her, and we'll start off this father of many nations thing. And Abraham is like, cool, let's do that. So he sleeps with Hagar, and Hagar conceives a kid, and the kid is named Ishmael, and Abraham goes to God, and Abraham's like, hey, we got this thing started off. I've got a kid. Now I can be the father of many nations. And God's like, nope, that's not the kid. And Abraham's like, what? Are you kidding? Like, when is this happening? And God's like, don't worry, I got this. And Abraham's like, all right, fine, whatever. And lo and behold, a little while after, Sarah conceives her own child miraculously, despite the fact that she's already gone through menopause. She gives birth, and bam, we have Isaac. Isaac is going to be the child of promise. Isaac is going to be the father of Jacob, who will himself be the father of Israel and the Jewish people. But we've already got a problem. Namely, now there are two sons. There are two inheritors of the promise. And Sarah's getting grumpy about this. Because now here's Hagar lording her little cutie pie Ishmael over her and Isaac. So she tells Hagar to, to hit the bricks. Like, get out of town. She doesn't want to see her again. Her or her little brat Ishmael. So Hagar takes off. And while she's off, God comes to her and says, Hey, Hagar, that was kind of a raw deal. I realize that that sucks for you. But good news, I'm going to bless you anyway. And Ishmael is also going to be the father of nations. And he's also going to be awesome. And he's also going to be showered with blessings. Um, everything's going to work out for you. The trouble is, as a result of this, there's some serious disagreement over who actually is the child of promise. Jews and Christians say that it's Isaac. Muslims say that it's Ishmael. Ishmael was the chosen child. Ishmael was the one that received all the blessings. And Ishmael will go on to be the father of the Arab people. So the Quran totally says that it's Ishmael who is the inheritor of the promise. Ishmael is the chosen one. Where the Bible will go on to say that it is Isaac. Um, we will be following the Bible on this one because for our purposes in Western philosophy, the while Islamic philosophy is in fact a major force and is important for our understanding, it's going to be relying on the Bible and the stuff in the Old Testament as well. So we're just going to follow Isaac. Just know that there already we have disagreement. Already we have like a schism in the created order as God is rectifying it. Um, so Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob ultimately becomes the father of Israel. Like he is renamed to Israel and he has something like a dozen sons because of some weird shenanigans that are played with his whole marriage situation. He has a huge number of sons, children, wealth. Like he is very, very successful. It's very obvious that we're off to a great start as far as this whole, like, God making a priestly nation that's going to be awesome and will be really important. Um, but then a famine hits, and Jacob is forced to go to Egypt. Um, this is totally okay. Fortunately, one of his sons, Joseph, who happens to be in Egypt for reasons that we aren't going to talk about here, um, has an in with him on with Pharaoh. So basically he and his family and all of the Israelites move to Egypt, and they'll stay there for several hundred years, which is where we find them at the beginning of Exodus. Um, they have at this point expanded enormously. They are in fact a nation in their own right and Pharaoh in Egypt is getting a little nervous about it. Like he doesn't want there to be some giant Hebrew revolt. So he starts putting some fairly heavy duty slavery laws in place um, to keep them under wraps. This is where Moses gets his command from the burning bush, namely God, to start going out and saving his people, to bring them out of Egypt, to restore them to their promised land of Israel, to start the whole process of saving the world the way that God intended. 
And so Moses gets his instructions, which is where we come into the story in Exodus 3. Um, notice especially the way that the burning bush talks to Moses here. Um, there are a couple of really important theological details. Um, most importantly, like after Moses manages to figure out that he's not supposed to wear shoes in the presence of holy bush, um, God tells him his name. I am who am. Um, this is one of those major, major important qualities of God. God is subject. Um, and philosophers will totally tear this apart for many, many, many years to come. Um, so at this point, we know that God is the creator. He made the universe. We know that God is good. He made the universe to be good. At this point, we also learn that God is the omniscient, the single perspective that is truth. Um, he is not just subject, he is object. What God says goes. Um, like, I'm not entirely sure how to express this because it is ambiguous and it isn't quite clear when he just says, I am who I am. Um, what I do want to emphasize is what this actually means. Uh, this is actually one word in the ancient Hebrew. Um, this is the word that has often been sort of transliterated as Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, I am especially reluctant to use those words because, like, the Jews have very strict restrictions about when you can say them. Specifically, you can't say them. Um, these are unpronounceable. These are the most holy of words. Um, and it technically means I am that I am, like, or just in brief, I am. Um, the same word for, like, being is the word that is presented here. But this is known in Jewish circles as the Tetragrammaton, the single most important name for God, but a name so important that no one is allowed to pronounce it. Um, it is referred to as the Tetragrammaton because that's literally just a fancy word for the four-letter word. Um, you cannot say it because one of the major rules, as you will notice in the Ten Commandments, is you will not take the Lord's name in vain. To avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, Jews just take the precaution of never ever saying the Lord's name. Um, now God has other names that you're more than welcome to say, like Elohim or Adonai. Um, there are lots of names over the course of the Bible. But anytime that you see, especially in like the ESV, um, anytime you see the Lord in all caps, but like the caps are smaller, that's an indication that the word being used there is the Tetragrammaton, the four letter word, the sacred name of God. Um, so this is already important. Like the sacred name of God is in short, I am. Um, he is being, his existence is primary. And we'll talk about that more when Aquinas picks up on it in a week or two. Um, now, obviously, this isn't the only thing that goes down in the burning bush conversation. Like, you'll notice that Moses actually wants the heck out of it. Um, like, he comes up with so many excuses for why God should not have picked him for this particular job. Like, oh, I'm really a stutterer, and I'm really bad at this, or I don't know your name, why would they take me seriously, or how will they know that I'm actually coming from you? And God's like, oh my gosh, quit whining, get on the road, I will make sure that this works out for you. Um, and what follows, of course, is the exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He's like, all right, time to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh is like, uh, pass. Why would I do that? 
And Moses says, because otherwise I'm going to like hit you with all of these crazy plagues. God is really mad right now. He wants you to let his people go and he's going to show off how strong he is if you do not play ball. And Pharaoh's like, Psh, whatever. I've got gods and they're awesome too. So like, what has your God got that my gods don't have? And then Moses shows him, namely in the 10 plagues that God sets over Egypt and they are vicious. Like, I only included the first couple here and then the last one because that one's really important. Um, but, like, the water gets turned to blood, frogs come all over the land, there are flies and there are gnats and there's locusts that eat all the food, there's, like, flaming hail at one point. Um, people get afflicted with boils, like, everyone gets covered in ugly, postulating boils. Like, it's a giant mess. Um... And multiple times, Moses comes to Pharaoh and is like, okay, this is what God is doing. Are you going to let my people go? And Pharaoh's like, fine. Oh my gosh, this is the worst. Just go. Just get out of here. I hate you. And then like five minutes later, he's like, wait, no, never mind. I, I changed my mind. Thank you for getting rid of that plague. But, you know, you can just stick around here. And Moses is like, all right, fine. On to the next plague. Importantly, though, what God is demonstrating, and the text like explicitly says this on multiple times, like God is showing Pharaoh who he is. God is demonstrating to the world who he is. God is like the important thing to take away from this is that God is, as the Latins will put it, omnipotent. He is incredibly powerful. And this is like the fourth characteristic we should keep in mind. God created the universe. God is really good. God is the perspective from which all things are true. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Um, and he is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. And he is absolutely just flexing his muscles in this case. Um, I don't think we included the passage in here, although there's plenty of indication, but um, God explicitly tells Moses that the reason why he is hardening Pharaoh's heart, why Pharaoh will not let them go, is so God can make such an incredible impression on the world that nobody will forget this. Um, this is God basically saying, these are my people and you do not screw with them or I will screw with you. Um, Pharaoh, the most powerful lord of the most powerful nation in the ancient world, the Egyptians, the most significant ancient civilization of like thousands of years, is getting wrecked by this tiny little group of Jews with their big scary god. Um, it is not the Jews who are pulling this off, it is God who is pulling this off. And this is one of the major themes of the Bible. Like what God is laying down here is, trust me. Um, you cannot solve your own problems. You cannot save yourself from yourself. You are sinners because of Adam and Eve. The world is broken and you cannot fix it. But I'm God and I can fix it. And I will fix it. And you've got to trust me to fix it. So, ten plagues later, um, Pharaoh is completely wrecked. Importantly, that tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, is going to be significant later. God is basically saying, all firstborn children belong to me. And if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be, like, preserved from my claiming you, you have to sacrifice an animal. Um, so we get the Passover celebration. In order to protect the Israelites, each of the Israelite families sacrifice a small lamb, like a very young, less than a year old lamb, with no blemishes, and then they spread their blood on the doorposts. Um, this is going to be important down the road. 
God has a thing for sacrifices, which will be very significant later. Um, but the important thing is the only way to pay for sin is with death. Um, this was em emphasized with Adam and Eve. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And Adam and Eve do die as well as everyone else who follows them. Um, sin means death. So in order to be forgiven from sin, in order for God to save you from the death that you are now responsible for, um, you have to sacrifice an animal. Something else has to die in your place. And in the laws that God sets down over Exodus and Leviticus and so on, multiple ceremonies, multiple rituals are stated and sort of explained where the Israelites can get forgiven for their sins, but only by sacrificing animals, only by letting something else die in their place. The most important of these is the Day of Atonement. There's this big giant festival where all of the people of Israel symbolically place their hand on a goat and the goat is led off into the wilderness and slaughtered. So all of the sin goes with it. And then the pre high priest has to take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it before the Ark of the Covenant where God will like address the sins of the world. This is how sin works from the Israelites' perspective. Something has to die in order to make sin go away. Now, admittedly, like after this whole Exodus thing, things go, if anything, worse. Like Moses leads the Israelites off into the desert in order to go back to Israel so they can go back to the promised land and have a good time in the place where they were promised to go. Um, but they make one stop along the way and God takes Moses up into the mountain, Mount Sinai to give him the laws, namely the Ten Commandments, which we read, as well as a bunch of other laws that we didn't read because they're not especially important for our purposes. Um, notice the importance of the laws, though. Like, God specifically says the first major law is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is probably the fifth thing that you should know about God. He is jealous. He is protective. He is the one God. There is only one God, God is insisting. Or rather, if there are other gods, you do not worship them because I am the only God you are allowed to have. You will be holy. You will be set apart. And as a result, you will have to act like it. You will have to act according to the rules that I set down for you, and that is how you are going to show everyone that you are my people and not the people of, like, Zeus or Thoth or uh, Baal or any of the other gods who are sort of running the show at this point in time. This is the next major characteristic of God. He is holy. And this is part of why Christianity and Judaism is so tricky to figure out, because unlike many other religions at this time, the pagan religions especially, like the Canaanite religions or the Egyptian religions or the Greek religions, the pagan religions that you're familiar with, um, they tend to be very inclusive. Like, let's have just more gods. Like, when the Romans show up and they take over Greece, they're like, let's just add all their gods to our pantheon. Like, if we worship all of the gods, then presumably none of them will be mad at us and everyone will be cool. This god... The God of the Israelites, Elohim, Adonai, does not work that way. If you worship him, you have to worship him exclusively. He does not tolerate competition. He will not tolerate other gods getting in on his territory. Um, likewise, that God has to be sacred, respected. Um, you can't make images of him. You cannot use his name in vain. Um, you have to keep the Sabbath day, the day that everyone rests, holy. Um, God emphasizes this, and he sets down laws for this reason. 
Um, this is how, what it looks like to be a God follower. And some of the laws seem silly. Like there's one where it's like, you will not wear cloth made of both coli, cotton and polyester, like no blends. Um, it has to be either one or the other. And it's like, why? Because he's God, because he is insisting on the natural order in its place, everything divided, everything orderly, your clothes included. Um, you do not mess with this stuff. No wool and cotton, no polyester blends, nothing like that. Um, you will also see like some of the laws are just pretty boring boilerplate, like don't murder each other, don't commit adultery, don't steal, um, don't lie against your neighbor in court. Um, this has obvious societal purposes, but one of the other things that we should keep in mind about this God is that this God is very moral. Like you hang out with the Greek gods and they will, you know, rape and they will do bad things and they will just like do whatever they want to do at any given moment. This God is not like this. Um, this God expects you to act according to a high standard of behavior. Um, and the Jews will fail to keep these laws like they're humans just like anybody else. And remember, the world is fallen. Sin is into the world. You can't fix it by yourself, as God has said. But they are going to try to keep the laws. Um, they are going to do their level best to keep up with what God tells them, even though they're going to fail incredibly badly multiple times. And the most obvious of these failures comes literally right after the laws are laid down. Like, I excluded something like 12 chapters of Exodus, but it's literally like, here are the laws. God is dictating the laws to Moses, and Moses is taking down all the laws. And then, like, Moses comes down from the mountain, and lo and behold, the Israelites have built a golden calf and are now worshiping it and, like, fornicating with each other and just making a giant mess of everything. And Moses gets so mad, he chucks down the tablets, and he's like, oh my gosh, you are the worst. I cannot believe that I am dealing with this right now. I just got all the laws back, and you have broken, like, all of them all at once like how is this even possible um and god's like yeah i'm done i'm out peace like screw you guys i thought that i could trust you i could thought that i could make you a priestly nation but it's obvious that you are not up to the challenge forget it i'm out and moses is like wait 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 wait, 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 wait. you've come all this way with us you really showed off your power you flexed your muscles against egypt you're really going to abandon us now like come on god tell me who you are and we can work our way through this. And God's like, okay, deal. But there are going to be precautions. Like, God, Moses can't see God in his full glory, his full splendor, or else, like, presumably Moses will go blind or get, like, disintegrated or something. So God's like, I'm going to, like, put you in this rock, and I'm going to walk by the rock, and I'm going to, like, cover you up with my hands so you can't see how awesome I am. And then, you know, you will understand who I am. Like, you will see my presence. Up until now, like, every time that the Israelites have interacted with him, like, even Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve, who did, in fact, like, get to see God, because apparently they were also, like, super-powered at that point in time, um, everyone else has dealt with God by proxy, like, in the form of a smoking furnace, or, like, the burning cloud, like, the is leading the Egypts through the wilderness. Um, up until this point, no one has seen God for reals until now. 
Um, and then we see like Moses hangs out in the rock and God walks by. And as he is walking by, you can hear the voice. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed in chapter 34, verse six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is like one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament insofar as it's literally God telling us what he is like, who he is. Um, and the primary things to take away from this, like again, on our list of characteristics of God, we've got he is the creator God, he is the good God, he is the omniscient God who sees everything and whose perspective is true. He is the omnipotent God who can do whatever he wants and overpower all the gods of the Egyptians. Now we get these two new characteristics. He is forgiving, but he is also just. Um, God has these two sides to him, these two sides that are almost seemingly warring with him. On the one hand, he will forgive and he will, he will be slow to anger. He will be gracious. He will be generous and kind. On the other hand, he will forgive. He will re not clear the guilty and visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. If you do bad things, your children and your children's children will suffer the consequences of those bad things. Um, even though he is forgiving, even though he is slow to anger. Um, and this arguably is just part and parcel with his goodness. Like goodness is slow to anger. It is gracious. It is kind. It is generous. It is forgiving, but it is also just. It is fair. It is appropriate. It meets out punishments according to their deserts. And this, these are both major qualities of who God is, stuff that philosophers are going to be sort of fighting with for many years to come. God is just, but God is merciful. God is forgiving, but God does not forget. Um, this is the fight that we're going to be seeing for the rest of the Old Testament all the way into the New. Um, we're going to see cycles of the Israelites screwing up so badly that God is like, that's it, you guys are in so much trouble, I'm gonna punish you so hard, and then he does, and then the Israelites are like, oh no, we're in so much trouble, God help us, and God does. Um, like over and over, I mean, at this point we've only covered like Genesis and Exodus, the first two books of the Bible, but literally the rest of the Old Testament is occasion after occasion of the Israelites screwing up, praying to God for deliverance, and God delivering them. But it's always temporary, because then they screw up again. Um, the book of Judges literally follows this structure. Um, they finally do get to the Holy Land. They finally do like set up shop in various parts of Israel, but they screw up the plan because they do in fact intermarry with the Canaanites. And as a result, they become tempted by the Canaanites gods and they start worshiping other gods. And as a result, God like wrecks them. And then they repent and they're like, God, you are our only God. And God's like, okay, here's my favor. I'll raise up this judge. He will save you from your problems. And they're like, yay, hooray, this is awesome. And then like five years later, they're worshiping those bad gods again, um, over and over and over. Finally, they get a monarchy. They get King David and King Solomon and King David and Solomon are good. And they largely lead the Israelites in the right direction, but eventually they slip away. And even David and Solomon screw up. And once again, the Israelites are punished. And eventually it gets so bad that God's like, that's it. I'm kicking you out of the Holy Land permanently. Like, we're done here. 
Um, first the Babylonians take over, like they kick everybody out of Jerusalem, they capture all the men and women and they carry them off to Babylon. And this is where we get a lot of the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, and this is where we get a lot of the imagery of Babylon as like the evil, wicked, iniquitous city. Um, but also in this case, he protects them, he preserves them. The Jews remain a sacred people, sacred to God, the priestly nation that he promised. But in this process, the Jews come up with this, like some of the prophets tell the Jews that there is going to be a real sea change coming. There's going to be a Messiah, a savior, someone who is going to be God's anointed. And most of the prophecies about this Messiah, about the anointed one, are that he's gonna save them from their political circumstances. Like they're gonna blow up Babylon and save people from Babylon, or blow up Greece when the Greeks are running the show, or blow up the Romans when the Romans are running the show. And the Jews are now waiting for this Messiah to show up and save them. But there's also a lot of prophecies about the Messiah that don't seem to make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Stuff like the fact that the Jews will apparently hate him, or apparently that he's going to be like killed at one point, but that's not going to stick or something. It's ambiguous. Now, what I'm getting at is this is, these prophecies are largely interpreted by Christians to refer to Jesus, Jesus Christ in the first century. Um, this is the next major change in the whole divine plan as far as Christians see it. But this is also a schismatic point. Not all Jews believe that Christians was the Messiah. And so Judaism continues as its own religion. The basic difference between Jews and Christians is that Jews believe that they are still waiting for the Messiah to come up and save them, while Christians believe that that Messiah has come, it was Jesus, and he has saved us, and now we are saved. Um, and the trouble with this is the question, have we been saved? Like the Jews were waiting for somebody to show up, beat up the Romans, kick them out of Judea, and then restore Israel to the Israelites. Now they will have the promised land again. Um, for Christians, that wasn't the Messiah's plan at all. The Messiah came the first time in order to save people from their sin. Christians have a unique relationship to sin. They can turn back the created order. Um, but let's talk about how exactly this works in the remaining like 20 minutes we've got here. Um, hooray Christianity in 15 minutes. Um, so at this point, the Jews have been kicked out of their land multiple times, but most of them have actually come back to it. And now we're hanging out in Israel and things are fairly cool, but they're not that great because the Romans are running the show. The Romans have taken over and the way that the Romans work these things, they basically just set up a garrison in the city and they then require tribute from whoever they're ruling. So... Most of the time this works out pretty well, like when the Romans run Northern Africa or Persia, um, they just like extract tribute, they accept whatever the gods are in that area and everyone's cool with it. Like they're not excited about the Romans running the show, nobody likes paying taxes, but it's way better than, you know, not being protected and the Romans are a real force that will defend them from like bandits and invading armies and things like that. So this is a pretty cool setup. However, this doesn't work for the Jews because again, the Jews have their one God and the Romans don't recognize that God exclusively. The Romans are like, hey, can we take, get a, make a statue of your God and put it in Rome? And the Jews are like, oh my gosh, that is like 10 ways of being bad. Because again, no images, can't take the Lord's name in vain, no gods before him. Like you cannot worship God and Zeus. That's not how this works. Um, 
So the Romans clearly don't understand how this works. Additionally, in all those laws that we skipped over, um, the Jews were commanded that they're not supposed to hang out with non-Jews, Gentiles. Um, the Romans are Gentiles. And that means that any time that a Jew so much as bumps into a Roman on the street, he is ritually unclean and has to go through this whole long process by which he becomes clean and he has to sacrifice and he has to do all this other stuff. Additionally, like, the Romans can't bring a Jew under their own roof. One of the restrictions is, like, Jews cannot go into the houses of Gentiles. Um, and as a result, like, any time that a Jew gets called to court, once again, ritually unclean, this whole big thing, it's a whole huge issue. And as a result, the Jews are constantly revolting against Roman rule to the point that like Palestine is the worst position in the Roman Empire. Like governors and, you know, major Roman officials are constantly like fighting to get out of Judea because it sucks. Like you get stuck in this post when your career is at a standstill. When like somebody is trying to get rid of you, they make you governor of Judea or proconsul of Judea. Like it's the worst position because these guys are always rising up. They're always trying to assassinate people, um, especially on those big festivals like the Passover festival or the Day of Atonement. Um, on these big festivals when all the Jews are supposed to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate these big events, like it's just a hotbed of revolution. Like any one thing that causes the mob to go off and now you've got riots all over J Jerusalem. Um, so it's really, really tricksy. Um, so the Jews are really dissatisfied with the situation. The Romans are really dissatisfied with the situation. They've come to like an uneasy agreement. Like the Romans are going to basically like keep control of the city and they're going to still take tribute but all of the major political offices are relocated outside of the city where they're not going to interfere with the jewish people um and like the jewish rulers namely the sanhedrin the the sort of priestly government um is sort of on having an uneasy truce with the roman government so like the Romans just let the Jews do their thing and the Jews just let the Romans do their thing and that's that's as close to peace as we're going to get but in the middle of this giant mess, you have bunches of revolutions and bunches of revolutionaries, bunches of Jews waiting for Messiah to show up and kick Caesar's butt. Um, and then Jesus happens. And Jesus is not what we were looking for. Um, Jesus does not start picking fights with Romans. In fact, Jesus has some pretty nice things to say about certain centurions. Um, Jesus does not take up swords and arms. Instead, he walks around barefoot and he like preaches about peace. Jesus does not do prophecy so much, though he will occasionally. Um, he acts like a rabbi, a master, a teacher. He speaks with authority and many of the Jews like are kind of taken aback by this. But most importantly, Jesus says some really, really objectionable stuff that makes the Jews really uncomfortable. Um, specifically, there's at least one occasion where Jesus, like, who apparently has, like, miraculous powers and he goes around healing people. Um, so, like, you know, people will literally come from all over just to, like, see Jesus or talk to him or ask him for blessings. If they're sick, they'll come to him. And, they like, there's at least one woman who just, like, she's got this major problem and she touches his robe and she's immediately healed. And word is getting out about this. Um, but the Jewish leaders don't care for Jesus all that much. Like he's cutting into their power and authority and he has some nasty things to say about the ruling class at this point, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, he keeps saying that the Pharisees are hypocrites and the Pharisees don't like that. So they're looking for an opportunity to get him in trouble and then they find one. 
um, Jesus performs a healing. There's like this lame man and Jesus says, you know, get up and walk and miraculously the guy can get up and walk. And then Jesus says, go, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, and the what now? Your sins are forgiven. When did you get the authority to forgive sins, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus is like, hey, is it easier for me to say, you know, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk when the guy is crippled? And obviously the guy is like walking away. So the Pharisees are like, well, yeah, I guess that's a good point. Um, but this assumes an authority that Jesus, a human being, is not supposed to have. You do not get to forgive sins, only God forgives sins, and only with the series of sacrifices in play. Only when something gives its life can sins be forgiven. So Jesus is out of line here, and they're sort of wondering about this. But then it gets worse. At one point, there, as recorded in the Gospel of John, um, Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees confront him. They're like, dude, why are you giving us all of these rules and laws? Why are you telling us that we're hypocrites? Can't you see we are sons of Abraham? Like we are part of the chosen people. We are special. We are set apart. We are holy. We are saved. God has us reserved. Um, so you can't tell us to do new stuff. And Jesus is like, dude, I could raise stones into sons of Abraham right now. Before Abraham was, I am and everybody loses their shit. Remember, when you say I am, what you are essentially doing is saying that you are God. Remember, God's name is I am. I am who am. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he is positing not just that he is the Messiah, that he is the savior, but that he is God himself. And there is no bigger blasphemy in the entire Jewish canon than saying, I am God. There is only one God. It is not you. Humans cannot be God. That is the way that this goes. So they immediately pick up rocks to stone him, but Jesus slips out and escapes without harm. The implication here is that Jesus is himself, not just Messiah, but God. He is Messiah, he is human, he is also God. And this totally messes with the Jewish perspective. God is not a human. You cannot represent God. God does not have an image. God cannot be a person or a thing, something that you can touch. Like, that's not how this works. But to make matters worse, then Jesus dies. Like, the Pharisees get so mad about this that they finally rig up a, a sort of plot to get Jesus killed. They catch him for blasphemy. They're like, dude, this guy clearly blasphemed. We want to execute him. So they go to the Romans who are responsible for all the executions. And they're like, dude, we need to get this guy killed. And Pontius Pilate, who's in charge of the situation, is like, I don't care about your religious crap. Get out of here. But then Jesus says, but then the Pharisees explain that like Jesus has said that he is the king of kings. And this does tick Pontius Pilate off because that's like taking authority from Caesar. So now it's kind of on the fence. And Pontius Pilate gives everybody the opportunity. They're like, all right. It's Passover, we're going to be forgiven criminals today anyway, so, you know, we'll just bring up Jesus and, like, we'll ask the crowd. We'll be like, hey, we could get, we could release Jesus to you, he's super popular, they'll probably just take him back, no problem, no harm, no foul, then he's your problem again. Or we can just release this guy Barabbas who murdered a bunch of people and nobody cares about him. But the Pharisees have paid off the crowd, and when Pilate is like, hey, who do you want us to release, Jesus or Barabbas? They all shout, Barabbas! Because the Pharisees have been paying them off secretly. So Pontius Pilate is like, well, crap. All right, I'm out. Like, 
I don't care. Not my problem anymore. Let the blood be on your own head. We're going to let Jesus die. Like, we're going to crucify him in typical Roman fashion. And they do. Jesus dies. But importantly, when Pilate says, let the blood be on your head, he is explicitly describing the same ritual of sacrifice that extirpates sin in the Jewish system. The suggestion that Christians are making about this is that when Jesus dies, he is performing a sacrifice, a sin sacrifice, in the same way that the lamb is sacrificed at Passover, in the same way that the goat is sacrificed on the Day of the Atonement. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He dies sinless, blameless, and divine so that everyone else may be freed from their sin, the obligation to die as a result of sin. Now, admittedly, this is a bit of a stretch from the perspective of the Jews, which is why so many Jews reject this. But then things are complicated one more time when Jesus comes back from the dead three days later. According to the stories, Mary and Martha, two of the women who were hanging around with Jesus during this whole period of time, they run to anoint him in his tomb and find out the body's been removed. Like, the tomb is empty. Instead, there's an angel sitting there who's like, why are you looking for him here? Don't you know? He is risen. He has come back from the dead. And after this, multiple people report that they have seen Jesus alive and kick it. Both his disciples, like the 12 dudes he was hanging around with and teaching especially. And also Paul says that there's a report of like 100 people at once seeing Jesus hanging out with them in a crowded area. Um, so there are significant and pretty solid reports that Jesus did not just die, but came back from the dead afterwards. And then after this, Jesus is like, peace out. I have to go and do something else. You guys are in charge for a while. Um, and now it's up to these followers, these disciples, to figure out what the hell just happened. Like, to make sense out of this series of events. And the best explanation they can come up with is what we call the gospel. The, what they are arguing is what I've kind of been suggesting this whole time, what the Bible frequently emphasizes, or at least the New Testament frequently emphasizes. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is a sacrifice. Um, because he is blameless, because he is sinless, and because he is God, his sacrifice can save everyone from their sins. It is a single sacrifice. It is a permanent sacrifice, unlike all those other sacrifices which only take place for whatever sins you've got at the moment. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. He gives his life so that others may live. And as a consequence, anyone who believes in Jesus, who accepts that sacrifice, who says, I take Jesus' blood on my head, those people are saved. They will have eternal life. They will not die, or at least not die in the traditional sense. Their souls will live on. And Jesus represents this when he himself comes back from the dead. Death is no longer permanent. Jesus has overcome death. He has beaten death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The biblical writers ask. Now, this is what the perspective that our Christian philosophers are going to adopt. And I admit, it's both far-fetched and it is also 
in direct contrast with the way that the Jews and the Muslims understand this. For the Jews, Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He died on a cross. That means that he is dishonored. There's no way that he can be God. That is right out. Um, and therefore, he must be nothing more than a blasphemer and like a crazy person who apparently, you know, reports were exaggerated about his ability to like heal people and do cool stuff. For the Muslims, they're a little bit more optimistic about Jesus's role. Their take is that Jesus was a really important prophet, but a failed prophet because he died. Like real prophets ascend into heaven or get saved in other ways, or at the very least they don't die ignominiously on crosses. So probably a good guy, but not entirely sure what to make of him. But what I wanna stress and what Christians will stress is that you gotta take Jesus or leave him. Um, you cannot just say like, Jesus was a really decent guy and it's probably exaggerated about him. No, this guy said, I am God. And you're gonna have to, at the end of the day, confront that question. Was this guy God or was he not God? Um, like this is the dividing line between Christians and atheists and basically anyone who is not Christian. The Bible basically confronts you and says, do you believe that this guy was God or not? If you do, congratulations, you are on the in-group, you are saved. If you do not, you are on the out-group, you are damned. You can reject the Bible and say, Psh, whatever, I don't buy it. But what you cannot do is say, I believe that Jesus was a good dude, but not God. Like, Jesus's goodness derives from the fact that he is God. Either he's a liar, a crazy person, or he's God, one of the three. Um, you can accept only one of those three options. He can't be both. Um, for our purposes in philosophy, Jesus is the last act of God to redeem the world. Um, remember, God is good. God is trying to fix the whole world. It's broken because of Adam and Eve. Well, Paul makes an explicit comparison. He says, you know, Adam was the guy who screwed up the world. Jesus is the guy who fixed the world. Everything that Adam broke, Jesus fixes. That's the way it works. Um, now, admittedly, sin is still hanging around. I don't know if you've noticed. The world occasionally sucks. Frequently, it sucks a lot. The understanding that the Christians have about this is that Jesus did in fact die, did in fact save Christians from sin, hooray, hooray, everything's great now, but he did not remove sin. Jesus is coming for round two. Um, we don't know when, we don't know exactly how. There's a whole description of the book of Revelation where things get really, really weird, but in the book of Revelation, Jesus shows up and he has a sword and he like wrecks Satan and he destroys all the demons and he casts all the evil people into a lake of fire where they will spend the rest of their days in eternity. And in the process, Jesus will usher in a new era of peace and prosperity on earth. The new Jerusalem will descend, as the prophet said, God will live directly among people and everything will be great. All tears will be wiped away and all pain will stop. So we're between Jesus' comings then. Jesus came the first time to save people from sin. Jesus will come the second time to stop sin in its tracks and beat back pain and suffering once and for all. In the meantime, here we are, running out our days. And the best thing that we as Christians are commanded to do is go out and tell others that Jesus saved them and therefore you don't have to be slaves to sin. Congratulations. Um, that's what I'm doing. Um, again, for philosophy, a lot of philosophers are going to have a lot of trouble trying to figure out where Jesus fits in the whole, like, godly order. Obviously, he is a major representative of God's forgiveness. But remember, God is also just. 
So there's a lot of time and energy spent on how to sort of like fit Jesus into the justice versus um, versus like merciful forgiveness of God. But the best explanation that people come up with is the one that I gave you. Jesus sacrificed himself like you would sacrifice a lamb or a goat to basically undo, to get a reprieve from your sin. Um, since it was a free willing sacrifice by God, it is one sacrifice for all. This is the theory of substitutionary atonement, as it was articulated by many theologians historically. Um, Jesus gave his life to satisfy the justice of God, and that gives us forgiveness, peace, save, salvation. Um, that's the way it works. So God is, as we specified, the creator, he is good, and by that goodness, we mean that he is both just and merciful, although Jesus is expressing his mercy and satisfying his justice. Um, he is omniscient, like he can see everything and his perspective is universal. He is omnipotent, he can do whatever he wants. He is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. He is also omnipresent, and Jesus emphasizes this in the Gospels. He is everywhere. Um, the last characteristic of God that we need to talk about is this omnipresence. A Christian or a Jew can pray to God anywhere and God will hear. Um, God is always around. That doesn't mean that we are God or that like the universe is God or that God is in the universe or anything like that. What it means is that God is everywhere all the time simultaneously. Um, most philosophers understand this to be sort of the same thing as God being eternal. Like God is outside of time rather than God changing over time, like God is changeless, that's, we can trust God not to change, that's one of the major important components of this biblical text. Um, it is important to notice that God is wherever he needs to be, whenever he needs to be there. Um, he can hear all of your prayers whenever you make them. Um, he is constantly around, you are constantly in touch with him, and there is no place you can go to escape God. Um, and this goes for Jesus as well. Like Jesus hears your prayers. Jesus is wherever multiple Christians hang out. Um, he is constantly in touch. Um, so those are the characteristics that you should keep in mind. And keep in mind too that like the characteristics of omnipotence, being all powerful or omniscience, being all knowing, this is kind of a cooperation between philosophers and theologians and the Christians and Jews who read these texts. The Bible doesn't ever use the term omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. These are very Latin terms. They come later. Um, but the ideas are implied in some sense, and philosophers will tease them out and sort of emphasize them, perhaps against the biblical sort of interpretation. There is tension there between how secular philosophers understand this text and what this text actually says. But the basics are the same. God created a good world, humans screwed it up, God tried to fix the situation, and the best sort of evolution of this plan is Jesus was sent to save people from their sins. Um, this sacrifice covers up all of the evil that has been done, undoes it in a very real sense. Um, so keep this in mind as we go forward and read Aquinas. Um, which is next week's reading, Aquinas. Aquinas is one of the great Christian theologians at the latter part of the medieval period. We will talk about the whole history involved next week. Um, keep in mind though, as you read Aquinas, that his format is very strange. 
Um, he write in this very medieval scholastic format in which he lo- like asks questions and then he addresses the objections to each question before he actually answers the question. Um, so you'll notice like the text is literally set up so it's like here is our question, objection one, two, three. Here is, you know, on the other hand, somebody says this, I answer that, and then he describes his own philosophy, and then he answers the objections, one, two, three. So to literally say, objection one, objection two, objection three, on the other hand, I answer that, reply to objection one, reply to objection two, reply to objection three. It's confusing, I realize. What I recommend that you do is actually change the way that you read the text. Don't start with the objections, that'll just confuse things. Start with, on the other hand, when he talks about like whoever his other definitive source is, then read I Answer That, where Thomas Aquinas explains his own philosophy, then read Objection 1, Reply to Objection 1, Objection 2, Reply to Objection 2, Objection 3, Reply to Objection 3. It's probably the best way to approach the text and will give you the best understanding of what Aquinas is trying to say and how he's addressing the issues that he sees in his time, like the people who would argue against his position. Um, so I hope that this was a profitable and helpful explanation of how exactly Christianity works. Again, if you want to talk more about this, by all means, shoot me an email or we can talk about it in any like online format that we talk about this stuff later. Um, like I am eager to explain all of the questions you may have about Christianity and God, because we definitely do not have enough time for me to do it in a single lecture. Um, this is the best I got folks, cause we're really rushed on this one. Um, so don't be a stranger. Let me know if you want to know more.